when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, GOP nominee Donald Trump and House Speaker Paul Ryan sat down for a meeting that the media has been hyping as something on the level of the Yalta Conference, if the Yalta Conference was about domesticating an insane, doll-handed white supremacist. But unifying the party won't be easy. There remains a subset of conservatives that have not given up on stopping Trump's ascension. Joining us to talk about what the Never Trump movement plans to do now is one of its chief organizers, Republican consultant Liz Mayer. Meanwhile, North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory, in his quest to demonize transgendered residents of the Tar Heel State, has entered a new stage, one in which the federal government threatens to withhold money from the state on the grounds that they've, you know, enshrined unconstitutional discrimination as a state practice, and the state has answered back with a legal claim of their own. So, who is suing who, and why, and how, and good lord, why is this happening, and has everyone forgotten it's 2016, we're all supposed to be adults for Pete's sake, are just some of the questions that we will attempt to answer. Finally, the Federal Reserve. For many, it's an institution that brings order out of chaos and helps our world thrum along effectively. For others, it's a famously opaque institution whose mysteries should be prized open for the public to see. But how did this institution come to be created? Well, rejoice, bank dorks. We'll talk with Roger Lowenstein, whose book, America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve, takes us back in time to chronicle the, you know, the, the epic struggle to create the Federal Reserve. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Laura Barone-Lopez, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Dana Liebelson. And here's what happened first. Hello, everybody who listens to So That Happened. Welcome back to another edition of our podcast about misanthropy and politics and the great yawning despair that is our times. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the host, I'm the editor of Eat the Press. Joining me this morning, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but joining me this morning, we're going to get into uh, some hot Donald Trump, Paul Ryan, one-on-one action. <laughs> joining me, got Zach Carter. Hey, everybody. And uh, it's been a while, but we're very, very happy to have back our stylish friend, Laura Barone-Lopez. Thanks for having me. There was sort of a suggestion last week that there might be, I don't know, a bit, a tiny bit of friction Mm -hmm. between Donald Trump, who is the presumed nominee of the GOP, and Paul Ryan, who is the presumed guy everyone in the GOP wishes was the presumed GOP nominee. Mm-hmm. And this week, they met yes. to, dis- to, dis- to, de- to decide, I guess, that they're going to stay together for the kids. Yeah, pretty basically. much. To decide if they were going to be unified or not. Right. And I guess Paul and Trump fall I, together. I guess, the, I guess <laughs> the idea is that we're looking for Paul Ryan to sort of signal his endorsement yes. of Donald Trump. So, Which did that he, 
It Did didn't happen? happen. What? No, he he's he's like getting warmer. Uh, he they said that they talked about the few differences that they have um, when they met at the Republican National Committee with the right. RNC chairman. Rince Priebus. Rince Priebus. Super genius Rince Priebus. I yes. think we have to call him. And uh, the rest of the House Republicans. And afterwards, uh, Paul Ryan said that, you know, Trump has a great personality, <laughs> seems like a genuine person. Um, he, you know, anyone is better than Hillary Clinton. So he definitely cooled off um, on what he was saying a week ago. But when asked directly if he would endorse him, uh, before the convention, he he dodged it. He wouldn't say. I, I, I love the line he said. You know, this this is a process, and the thing is, it's, it takes it's, time. It's usually not a process. No, it's not. <laughs> usually, yeah. if you're the leader of Republicans in the House of Representatives, you don't have a problem endorsing the Republican candidate for president. It's mm-hmm. just something that happens. Yeah, um, it's reflexive. And yet, uh, <laughs> and yet. Even Paul Ryan appears to be embarrassed by the fascist takeover of the Republican Party. What really, I ha- I think everyone in the office laughed when he said this, but he compared the so-called process mm-hmm. that he's going through with Donald Trump, which is like, oh, I'd like to get to know you better. You know, I hear a lot of things like maybe you're an autocrat that thinks Mexicans are garbage. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's cool. It's like a first date. We can get to some of this other sort of stuff. So, other stuff out later. Yeah, by but, the way, if you're just talking about what a great personality your date had after the first date, yeah, it probably didn't go that well. Exactly. That's usually how it happens. Seriously. But he said <laughs> he compared it directly to like the process of, of he and Mitt Romney coming together. Yeah, nope. <laughs> and everyone laughed. And we yeah. were like, come on, you can't. Me and Mitt Romney didn't agree on everything. Yeah, but you didn't like have, you didn't have people standing around wondering, God, are these two guys going to yeah, get along? Once. Did he say, I can't endorse Mitt Romney at this point in time? <laughs> right. So. right. And if he had, do we really think that Paul Ryan is going to be the vice president for Donald Trump? Do we think that? No. I don't. We no. don't think that. <laughs> like, that would be crazy. But, I mean, what am I going to say? Am I going to start saying that crazy things won't happen in this election now? See where that got me. I got to say, yeah. I, look, as awful and frightening as the Trump candidacy has been, the silver lining has been watching all of these Republicans who have just done terrible things in years past just have to feel terrible and look awkward in public over and over again. I mean, it's not like <laughs> Donald Trump is the first candidate to have to say nasty things mm-hmm. about immigrants. Right. Remember Mitt Romney's campaign platform. He was campaign platform on immigration was self-deportation. We're going to make well, things so bad we, that they want to leave. That people leave. That, that's a nasty that's, thing to, to do. Mm-hmm, and that's what uh, Democrats in both the House and Senate are talking about a lot right now, especially with Trump coming this week. They have had a number of press conferences just dedicated to Trump, but what they're doing is they're showing side-by-side, saying, look, it's Trump was birthed by Republicans uh, in the House. They showed um, Representative Steve King uh, talking about immigrants with, um, you know, calves the size of cantaloupes because they were bringing drugs over uh, across the border. Very and, strange uh, that that was the one muscle group that drug smuggling allegedly mm-hmm. worked. Yes. <laughs> Very strange. And, you know, they also sh- uh, talk- showed clips of when Representative Peter King um, talked about uh, saying that there were too many mosques in the country. 
So right. they they were trying to show, look, this isn't the first time a Republican has said these things. And why is Paul Ryan acting so astonished by Trump and yet not calling out his own members? Well, I think that he's astonished that <laughs> someone who now says the quiet part loud is is the presidential nominee. It's, I, it's I, someone yeah. who makes the subtext text. I think that's part of it. I mean, I also think that the Republican establishment um, the, the the class of elites that we refer to as the Republican establishment uh, generally cares about two things. They care about an extremely hawkish foreign policy in which the United States drops bombs to solve as many problems as possible. And they also care about an, a, a supply-side economic uh, set of principles in which we solve economic problems by cutting taxes for wealthy people. And it's really not clear that Donald Trump adheres to either of those. It's not clear mm-hmm. what the hell Donald Trump adheres to in terms of policy. Uh, but I think what Paul Ryan, his goal in life here is to cut taxes for rich people and cut entitlement benefits for old people and poor people. And it's not clear that Donald Trump agrees with either of those things. It's not clear that he doesn't agree with them. Those would be, yeah. but I guess, he, the things that they need to patch up. It's like, so I like the cut of your chip, but really, are you going to cut entitlements? Because he has consistently said Ryan didn't. Mm-hmm. Ryan did not care about the racist stuff that Mitt Romney was saying in 2012 because Mitt Romney agreed with him on these economic policies. And... And I, I find it hard to believe that all of these Republicans who are now crying foul about Trump's bigotry uh, really only care about the bigotry, given what the party has been doing for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Are we getting closer to a, a, a Trump that's going to be more supply side oriented? I mean, we learned this week he's he's breaking bread with supply siders to develop a tax, I guess, a tax plan that he'll now stick to and say <laughs> is my plan. Um, but that's that's <laughs> I mean, look. Donald Trump has already put forward a tax plan that the conservative tax foundation uh, said would cost at least $10 trillion. Which sure, sure, but it's going to be like $6 trillion to, now. To, to put that in context, the national debt owed to the public is like $12 trillion. So he's basically talking about doubling the national debt. I mean, like, like this is, you know, the, the idea that he's going to like break power, bread with conservatives. They don't care about the debt. We know that. It's, it's, it's a, always been a shadow boxing move in order right. to cut entitlements. People, people scream about the deficit and the debt because what they really want to do is make sure that old people don't have as much stuff. And that's, that's, that's really all it is. The debt, you know, if we cared about the debt, we would not have gone into Iraq. We would not have done the Bush tax cuts. Uh, we would not have done many things. Is there a general mood up on Capitol Hill with all these proceedings going on? Because it's so unusual. Mm-hmm. This, this pairing of Ryan and Trump it feels like a couple that's simultaneously going out on their first and second date and divorcing and dividing up assets. Yes. It's so perplexing. Among House Republicans, it is an interesting... I mean, all Republicans on the Hill, it's it's interesting to watch them whenever they're asked a Trump question, especially if they, you know, haven't indicated that they would uh, endorse him yet or not or are overly supportive of him. You know, they, the, the funny thing is that they just like to call him the nominee. They don't even want to mention his name if, if they can help it. And every time they're <laughs> asked a question about him, and even when they were asked questions about Cruz, you know, it was a little smirk and a kind of oh. like shift. And then, uh, well, you know, I, um, uh, we're going to support whoever the nominee is, and I think that we're having a great campaign. And <laughs> um, it's you been know, a great party, and, uh... and uh, anyone's better than Hillary. So uh, I think we're headed in the right direction. Kind of what? Hey, the tr- truth is, not anyone is better than Hillary. Just not true. <laughs> a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters out there who have been saying that too, and they are wrong. I guess. I guess we'll we'll continue to watch this. 
unfold as if it was um, a season of The Bachelor. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. We we will probably. I, I think we may have to like. We may have to like have a podcast where we just give Claire and Emma the opportunity to to hold forth on. Paul Ryan, Paul, Paul Ryan said that Donald Trump had a warm personality. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, so, said, he, said so that. he said that. Claire, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray, if you're out there listening, please, we'd like to borrow your insight into The Bachelor in adjudicating the Ryan-Trump uh, relationship. Okay, <laughs> Zach Carter, Laura Barone-Lopez, I appreciate you guys so much. It's just so great having you here. And it's great to be here. Yeah, it's really great. It's fantastic. And we have a great show. Please stick around. We will be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Joining us, a uh, very special guest uh, to kick things off. Uh, she is a Republican consultant. She has consulted most recently, I believe, with uh, Scott Walker's presidential campaign. That is technically correct, He yes. might still be a presidential <laughs> candidate if he hadn't cashiered you. Now she is the uh, Khaleesi of the Never Trump movement. Please welcome Liz Mayer. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to have you, Liz Mayer, even though I think this is the first time you've actually been on the podcast, but we've... I've been on other things. You've been yes. on other things That's here at right. the Huffington Post. Glad to talk to you. And so we're going to talk um, about, right now, the future of the hashtag Never Trump movement. Sure. Um, today, you've outlined... Sorry, I said today, Arthur. Yeah, we're not on a day right now, Sorry. dear listener. It's Sorry. whenever you are. So this week, this week, you you um, you've taken up the cause of like trying to uh, find a path forward for Republicans who are really, really upset that Donald Trump is their nominee. Options that they have mm-hmm. going forward into the election, because right now there's no real. Uh, primary option because there's no real primary opponent anymore. Yeah, or, well, I mean, I think if you look at Nebraska's results last night, there are obviously still about 40% of the uh, the voters in some states that refuse to accept that position. Um, Correct, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, to some extent, maybe there is an option, maybe there's not. But yeah, basically, I wrote this piece in The Federalist uh, largely because I've been getting a lot of questions from everybody from 
average Americans who are friends of mine, who follow what I do, to reporters, to fellow activists about, okay, well, now that Trump is apparently the last candidate standing, what's never Trump going to do? And I kind of reached the point where I thought, okay, I can spend four hours a day doing interviews, talking about this and saying the same thing over and over again, or I can write the piece. (laughs) And still do interviews. And still do interviews, right? (laughs) Yes. And still clog up my time now, which is all good. never our clutches. That's right. No, it's all good. But here here we're talking beyond what's the basic stuff that's in the piece. So, I mean, people should go and take a look at it. But basically the point of the piece, um, I'm not personally committing myself to – anything beyond not voting for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, which is basically the position that I've had for, oh, I don't know, basically since both of them were obviously going to be in the race. But some Republicans Um, are going to vote for Hillary Clinton, or so they have said. So they have said. um, Yeah, I think, and I do think that that's real for a lot of people. I have sat in meetings with fellow Never Trump activists where I have been sort of hated on for, you know, drawing any sort of equivalency between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, as as I'm sure some people listening to this podcast will share. Um, But yeah, I think that that is real for for those people. Um, You know, when I've said to people that fundamentally a lot of the objections that I have to Donald Trump are the same objections that I have to Hillary Clinton. I'm a libertarian, so I have a very minority view on a lot of these things. Um, People who I think are more mainline conservatives, um, they have in some cases objected to that and said, no, I think she would be better. I will vote for her. And so I guess those people aren't really actively part of the Never Trump movement anymore because a lot of what Never Trump is focused on, as this piece outlines, is trying to find some option that doesn't entail Clinton or Trump for people who are not not exclusively Republican voters who are disenchanted with the setup. Um, but at this point, predominantly, I think at some point you may see certain types of Sanders voters potentially taking a look at those options, depending on what those options are. But, you know, one of them that I think potentially could be attractive to some Sanders voters is the first one that I lay out, which is supporting the Libertarian Party nominee, particularly if that's Gary Johnson, because in him, you're going to be dealing with somebody who is socially more moderate to liberal. But, you know, when you're looking at Sanders voters who maybe are socially more moderate to liberal, but are primarily voting on the issue of civil liberties or foreign policy record, um, they may not be comfortable with Hillary Clinton. Um, and so somebody like Gary Johnson, I think, could potentially be appealing there. I heard about Gary Johnson just yesterday. Uh, he actually is quite an appealing candidate. Mm-hmm. Begin with the fact that he's one of the more fundamentally decent human beings to ever lace it up and want to run for president. Right. Um, he, I, I think he's definitely squarely in your wheelhouse, Liz, on immigration. He, He's... Yeah, he, he's he's not some kind of like xenophobic. No, I think he I, I'm not I, I will I will cop to being not 100 percent familiar with every single thing he's ever said on every single issue. But my general sense is that he sees immigration as a net positive, not a net negative, um, which is true of many people in the Republican Party, too. But it doesn't appear to be true of Donald Trump, at least in his current iteration. You know, I would I would stipulate current because obviously he's been all over the map on a range of issues, sure. including should, immigration. Should, should his uh, uh, future iterations matter? I am amazed that people are waiting to see what he does as if that will affect their thinking. Well, to me, it doesn't much matter. Um, I mean, my problem with Donald Trump, if we get down to it, is the, it's really to do with his issue positions on a couple of matters where he has been consistent actually over the last 30 years and he's not saying anything different now. Um, and this is where... 
I may have some disagreements with people who are listening to this podcast. Um, but if you look at Donald Trump's comments on health care over decades now, okay, now he's kind of trying to sound a little bit more conservative friendly, largely by saying, I hate Obamacare. It, okay, well, on spec, I mean, I guess there are a lot of conservatives that are like, yeah, I do too. But the difficulty with Trump on that for me is, sure, he doesn't like Obamacare. That's because he likes single-payer health care and because he likes social, socialized health care systems. And if you look at his, his stance on health care policy over about 30 years, he has been very consistent. He has been for single-payer. He said good things about the Canadian system. He said good things about the British system and the Scottish system in particular, which is arguably worse than what you find in a lot of the rest of the UK. And so for me, I mean, whatever he wants to say on health care going forward is really pretty irrelevant because he has a decades-long history of taking those positions. So you've got to drill down on things that have been there from before. Right. And and that's one of them. Another one is, you know, his view with regard to trade policy and tariffs and wanting to do things that would entail instigating trade wars with people. And he's been remarkably consistent about that, too. That's true, and, yeah. You know, he really has. Um, and uh, is somebody who comes from Washington State, comes from Seattle. Um, it's an economy that tends to do very well out of trade. My family is Scottish. Um, we, you know, Scots really wouldn't have a lot going for us as, as a group were it not for, you now, the ability to move around the world and conduct trade and commerce. Um, I, I don't really agree with him when it comes to trade policy at all either, but he has been remarkably consistent about that. I think also when you look at um, sort of his overall view to the extent that you can really call it a view on foreign policy, um, certainly when you look at specifics, you know, he said, oh, I always oppose the Iraq war. Like, obviously, that's not true. Such a yeah. liar. Um, there are a number of things where on the specifics, he is fibbing, uh, to put it mildly. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know. So Gary Johnson. So Gary Johnson, yes. Gary Johnson obviously doesn't have quite that view, I think, when it comes to foreign policy either. But I think when we look at um, questions regarding things like civil liberties that unfortunately do tie in with foreign policy at this point in time. I think that he is probably a more rational candidate on those sorts of topics. Like um, not rounding up 11 million people. I think also his views on um, things like surveillance of yeah. one's emails or phone yeah. calls are probably uh, a little bit more in keeping with the American tradition than perhaps what I would say either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump's have been. I think um, that's fair to say. And I think that, you know, going back to my original point, I think for that reason, I mean, he is he is interesting to a lot of Republicans who are pissed off at Donald Trump and don't want to support him because the Libertarian Party's performance means that very likely he is going to be on all state ballots. So it's an easy option if he gets a nomination to tick the box. But I think beyond that, he is going to be interesting to some Sanders voters for those civil libertarian reasons as well. But so, voting for him would help Hillary Clinton. Depends on the state. And I'm not sure actually that that's going to be true in the round. I think a lot of people say that. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I think given the way that Donald Trump might perform in the general election, um, nobody nobody needs to be helping Hillary Clinton or will be helping matter, Hillary Clinton, yeah. right? I mean, so so there's there's that, but I think also you know just generally when we get into talking about third party candidacies and who they help and who they hinder, I mean, yes, probably in some states that may help Hillary, and in some states that may help Trump. So that's um, but in the round, you know, you go back and you look at Ross Perot and there's this great mythology out there that Ross Perot running deprived George H.W. Bush of a second term. And that's actually not true. So that's a seamless mechanism that Republicans who don't want to vote for Trump can can move into. There's a trickier one that you've talked about, though, and that is uh, uh, this idea that you find uh, conservatives who are of 
uh, I would say, important standing within Mm -hmm. certain states to run solo right. campaigns in those ballots. And that's and, and the reason yeah, like this Mitt is, Romney runs in Utah, wins right. Utah, deprives Trump of those electoral votes. Right. This is sort of called the independent conservative option. And it's something that I think, to be fair, is probably of greater interest to never Trump folks than voting for Gary Johnson. It just may not be as practical depending on how things play out. Anyway, getting back to where we started with this. This is one reason that the independent conservative bid has appeal. There is the thought that for those people who simply cannot support candidates that they know are going to be on the ballot, um, they could support, I don't know, let's say if hypothetically if Paul Ryan said, okay, fine, throw my name in the mix, I'll run in all 50 states, right? People would be comfortable with that. And the idea is that if you pick the right person or the right people to run in different states, there are people like me who maybe aren't voting on something like abortion as an issue, but for other reasons, um, or, or potentially a little bit that reason, are deeply concerned about Clinton and Trump. Those people would probably vote for that kind of a candidate, too. And that's true. I mean, candidly, if, if Paul Ryan were on my presidential ballot, I would tick his name in a heartbeat. I, I don't think I would think twice about it. The question is, who do you find to do that? And can you find one person that you can run in all 50 states? Or do you need to do the thing that that I detail in more specificity, which is finding extremely well-known, popular, liked people with high name ID um, from individual states and putting those people on the ballot? So, yeah, somebody like Mitt Romney in Utah, like, I don't know, Susan Collins in Maine. That sounds really hard. You should steal the delegates. Um, that's another option is trying to trying to just go to the delegates. And this is something that Eric Erickson, who is who is another person who is prominently never Trump, basically has urged. And I, I think it was put up on his website, The Resurgent. Uh, I know we're not doing days, but sort of <laughs> this week. sort of kind of this like week. yesterday or today or sometime recently. recently. You can go to The Resurgent and do a little bit of searching and you will find a post that basically advocates for Republican delegates not participating in what Erickson calls sort of a suicide pact and essentially going to the convention, throwing out the rule book and doing whatever they want. The dirty secret about right. political conventions is that they are essentially Calvin Ball. You could just make up the rules. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the thing that the thing that, you know, Donald Trump has been sort of bleeding on about is that political parties ultimately are kind of self-governing organizations, right? Yeah. I mean, in the same way that he uh, the Trump organization can do whatever he wants so can Republican delegates. There's always the ramifications you have to live with afterwards. But of course, I guess, to your mind, you're weighing those ramifications against the ramifications of Donald Trump becoming president. Or or maybe not even becoming president, but just tainting the party and causing massive down-ballot losses, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I think people are really concerned about. And one of the things that is, again, a strong driver towards the independent conservative option or the just getting the delegates to throw the rule book out option really is trying to save people who are down ballot. Um, There is a very deep concern that nominating Trump probably means we just automatically handed the presidency to Hillary Clinton. I wouldn't say that that's a 100 percent cert, but I certainly see a lot of data that indicates that that is an overwhelming probability as it stands. I think the big concern is, yeah, so then what happens with Senate and House races? Um, We may be able to stomach the idea of losing the presidency. Republicans have got pretty used to that recently. (laughs) Um, But the idea of uh, losing uh, certain senators and losing the House is one that's very hard for people to stomach. And so that's one of those those reasons why those options has has attraction, has appeal. 
All right, Liz Mayer. You can follow her on Twitter at Liz Mayer, L-I-Z-M-A-I-R. That's right. Uh, her piece is at the Federalist today. Please check that out. We'll include a link to it somehow, some way. Today or not today or this week or sometime ha- this month. It or happened at a moment in at time. At some point, yes. And time is a flat <laughs> circle, bleeding in the end. Liz, thanks for joining us. Thank We'd you. We'd like to have you back. All right, we will be right back. And we're back. And right now we're back uh, with Zach Carter. You're here. Hello. Hello. Hey there, Zach. And uh, joining us is our, our, our wonderful colleague, Dana Liebelson. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had you on the show. Yeah, I don't know why. Because you won't come on the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be here now. But we got you. We got you now. Um, so, uh, by the way, Dana just uh, was a finalist for a big journal. Oh, yeah. Award. Yeah, let's, let's talk oh, about that thanks, briefly. Guys. We want to congratulate Dana for being a big finalist for, uh, what award was it? Uh, it's the Livingston Award, which is for uh, young people. Journalists under, under 35. 35. It's a pretty big deal. So so congratulations. Thanks. Congratulations. Dave Jameson, also a big winner of Journalist Yeah, Prizes. Deadline Award. Yeah, so everything, you know, real pedigree is what we're promising mm-hmm. you here on this podcast. So, okay, in North Carolina, Governor Pat McCrory invented a crime to then criminalize it, the crime being... Transgendered people couldn't walk into restrooms unless they were the ones that were on their birth certificate. And it's been a big mess. Now uh, the state of North Carolina is suing the federal government. The federal government is suing the state of North Carolina. We're going to try to make sense of some of this. It is so hard, Dana, for me to talk about this law in general because it is the kind of law that a shitty seven-year-old kid would come up with. Yeah, I have to agree that the logic behind it is incredibly bizarre. I think, you know, the conservative line of thinking is that we don't want male predators going into public restrooms and attacking women and children. None of us want that. Which, first of all, that's a crime. Um, You know, and second of all, there's been a number of domestic violence and sexual assault prevention groups that have come out and said, what are you even talking about? This has nothing to do with victims of abuse. Right. And, you know, that's why critics of the law argue that, in fact, it's it's very much designed to just be discriminatory against transgender individuals. Right. And and, and the, the, the actual, I think, seed vent behind this was didn't have anything to do with a crime. There's no crime wave of transgendered people assaulting people in bathrooms. If anything, it's the reverse. Uh, but the precipitating event seems to have been Charlotte, North Carolina, passing a broad ordinance protecting... Uh, all kinds of people against discrimination, uh, including transgendered people. And Pat McCrory had a problem with that and shut it down with this bill. Yeah, it was a pretty standard civil rights ordinance. And then out of that, we got this incredibly strange sort of unprecedented law. I just wanted the thing that drives me crazy here is like, do we really think that criminals read bathroom signs before going to attack women? <laughs> sure, sure. Like, is that the logic here? Of course like, they do. It's like, oh, crap. Like, I would if I'm carrying around a sign that says, don't harass me, do you think men on the street are listening? Like, going to read my sign? I'm sorry. This is my own tangent about this. Uh, well, I also pretty just good think, tangent. Um, let, let's, let's just talk about enforcing this law for a second here. Um, how how is it that you you prove that you're not transgender before you go into the bathroom? How, who is is there an inspector? What Let's, is the process? I, here? I feel like almost this entire conversation is is offensive to. <laughs> I mean, it's offensive and it's offensive to the transgender community because you know 
you should, the overall you shouldn't idea is that they're predators. People to prove, yeah, and you shouldn't require people to prove, you know, their gender identity. And if and anything, it just doesn't make sense to me because now you have people walking into bathrooms if they're following the law and saying, "Hey, there's a reason I look like a dude and I'm standing in the women's bathroom," which is, which is, I don't. It just draws more attention to it. It's it really uh, logic is so out of whack here. It's almost intention with anyone who has a an intellect. And I think that's kind of what the federal government's position on this is. Yeah, to kind of make this even more more absurd to taxpayers. So, you know, the federal government wrote a letter to the governor saying, hey, this law violates civil rights, federal civil rights law, as well as the Violence Against Women's Act. You should fix this in the next week. Um, and rather than sort of addressing potential discrimination issues, the governor sued the feds back. Um, and he basically wants the federal court to clarify that, uh, no, this law is not discriminatory uh, under federal law. And what's at stake here is a huge amount of federal funding. And we're talking, you know, up to $4.7 billion right. in education funds, as well as about $5 million in funds that go to anti-domestic violence programs, and, and this is all under the Violence Against Women Act. So, <laughs> you know, you could argue that maybe the federal government shouldn't be holding these funds hostage, but you could also argue, why is the governor risking these funds to defend this law that's, like, not very popular and is throwing businesses out of the state? It's kind of an amazing conservative coup, though. If, if he loses the case, then less education funding and less funding for violence against women programs. Right. So, so more, if he wins... More bathroom laws? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 one of the parts of McCrory's response to the government's action was just priceless. It's like, oh, the chutzpah on this dipshit. He complained that he wasn't given enough time to respond to their brief. And we're talking about a guy who passed a law in a one-day special section right. of, of the state legislature where people didn't get a chance to adequately read what was happening right. until it was too late. We didn't even get reporting out of this uh, on this bill and what it was going to do until it had passed. And for the guy to complain about, oh, I haven't had enough time. This is a real rush. It's just he's ugh, an amazingly ballsy dipshit. But you've also talked about how uh, people who are in the business of trying to protect uh, domestic, pre prevent domestic violence and protect survivors have said that this law is going to completely screw up their lives, too. Uh, I don't know if they've they've phrased it that way. I mean, uh, they oh, probably oh, you're are saying much... like with the funding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if if this funding was stripped and this could take a long time because, you know, the, the case could be appealed to the Supreme Court it could take years. Um, yeah, it would absolutely affect how they're providing services and affect victims and outreach and education. I don't think anyone wants it to get to that point. And sure. I, and I don't think it will. <laughs> uh, but I think the fact that the governor is willing to risk it is sort of interesting in and of itself. Well, like you said, be perfectly within his policy brief to deny domestic violence funding to the people of the state. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, McCrory's been a, a really hardline right winger, sort of um, in in the mold of uh, maybe not Scott Walker, but uh, Sam Brownback in Kansas. Um, it, despite the fact that he's from a state that is not as conservative as it used to be, I mean, you couldn't even look among cons among self-identified Republicans in in North Carolina. I think only like forty eight percent, fifty two percent. There's a, a almost even split of Republicans who support the bathroom law. 
so it's a very, very, I mean, he's representing a conservative wing of a Republican Party um, that does not, is clearly, is clearly pushing back against the direction in which the state has been moving over the last decade. Um, and it's interesting to me to see it get more reactionary because we've sort of seen that in other parts of the country too. And I think the country overall, particularly on social issues, um, you see the country becoming more liberal. And as a result, I mean, we didn't need to have bathroom laws 20 years ago, right? I'm sure there no. was still kind of a panic about bathrooms. All, but, all, <laughs> but all of these people who are freaking out about trans people right now, it's not like they were really comfortable with trans people 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But they didn't feel the need to, to just have a law just being like, by the way, we want to make it official. We don't like those people. <laughs> <laughs> just so you guys know, okay? Um, and now, now, there's, now there's this backlash. Uh, and, and to me, it's, it's sort of like, I think culturally it's the sort of last gasp. These things are not, even, even if this law ends up being upheld and all of, these, all of this you know, state funding goes away, it, you know, it, it's not like they're really going to be enforcing this law in five years or 10 years or 15 years. I think it's crazy. I think anything goes wrong in North Carolina, crime-wise, the mantra has to be get out of the bathrooms and start actually arresting people who actually commit crimes instead of this made-up nonsense. It's important to point out that there is actually kind of a split and backlash within North Carolina's government, too, because this lawsuit that McCrory is filing, it's it's being filed through means other than... The, right, the attorney general's office, because the attorney general is a Democrat who's actually try, gunning for McCrory's seat. Yeah, Roy Cooper is running against the governor this year for uh, the seat, um, and I think uh, McCrory didn't even tell Cooper that he nah, was yeah. filing the lawsuit yeah. in advance, which I found <laughs> fairly hilarious. I mean, uh, because you know that's technically the state's top attorney, and he was like, and that that just shows that's not so uncommon. I mean. It's uh, Cooper's made it really clear he's not defending this law and he's been pretty has outspoken against it. Yeah, and we saw that happen a lot with um, you know all the same-sex marriage cases statewide. There were a lot of attorneys general who recused themselves from these cases because they felt like these you know anti-gay marriage laws were unconstitutional. So that's kind of and just you really, what we're especially if you're here. a high-profile elected official and lawyer, you really don't want to be looking back in twenty or thirty years and be like. Okay, son, so uh, that thing that I defended back then, uh, yeah, because it's pretty obvious where the country's gone. Yeah, yeah I mean, we saw how same-sex marriage went, so. <laughs> so, yeah, it does feel like a, a last gasp, but what a brutal thing to do yeah. to people who have never really, uh, who've always been just really, really marginalized on our society. This is the one of the least deserving groups of people that kicking the teeth just right don't, now. Just don't be assholes. That's that's just the, the, the general rule. <coughs> don't be an asshole. Okay. This, law, this law is being an asshole. We should all take time and reflect on whether we are assholes in our lives and make changes. All right. Cool. Cool. Thanks, guys. We've, we've established at least one good thing we can go going forward. Um, Zach, thanks for being here. Dana, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks for guys. using the proper plural of attorney general. It's no wonder you win big <laughs> awards all the time. We are really happy to have you on the show, and we'll love to have you More back. More Dana's Liebelson. In another three months when you decide to come back on the show. But we'll always be here. Okay, okay, thanks. All right, we'll be right back. And we're back. Never fear, podcast listeners. I know it's a little uncomfortable for me to be hosting this right now instead of Jason Lincoln's. It's not true. But I'm Zach Carter. I'm here with Jason Lincoln's. Hi. And uh, we have a very special guest right now, uh, a man who has written a book called America's Bank, 
uh, which is about the birth of the Federal Reserve. And, uh, and his name is Roger Lowenstein. Roger, thanks for joining us. Uh, gentlemen, it's a real pleasure. So, Roger, you wrote a book. I mean, I'm a bank dork, so I like this type of thing, and I just find it inherently interesting. But, but why write a book about the, the, the birth of the Federal Reserve, something that happened over a century ago uh, now? Well, it happened in this, to me anyway, fascinating period in the middle of the progressive movement, uh, but in progressive era, but also in a time when people were so upset about a lot of the things they're upset about now. Uh, people were upset about big banks. They were upset about uh, financial crashes and potential for bailouts. They were upset about what level of government or not should be involved in the economy. And, um, you know, when I started this book, it was right after, in the aftermath of our most recent disaster with mortgages and bailouts and everything. And when the Fed was so involved, the Fed is so involved, and I wanted to know how we came through a somewhat similar crash a century ago without a Fed and why it was that we didn't have one, because even at that time, we were the only nation in the developed world that was trying to run their economy on this extreme laissez-faire uh, basis with you know, no lender of last resort. And the, the answers just all flowed right to the to the debates we're having today. So um, for me, uh, you know, and, and hopefully people out there, bank dorks or not, it, it, it was a, just a fascinating topic. So I, I found uh, some of the historical details about the economic world before the Fed to be really uh, uh, basically unsettling. Because we, we we kind of take um, we kind of take for granted that um, that there is like one uniform American currency, but that really wasn't the case uh, bef- before the Federal Reserve, was it? We had individual banks, uh, private banks that were chartered uh, by the states. They were that is the states gave them a you know a charter permitting them to do banking, and um, they would lend money to people. Those that uh, they, they would borrow money. Those, mm-hmm. that, those borrowings took the form of notes. So there'd be a piece of paper that, you know, a note, an IOU from the, uh, you know, Chase Bank of, of, of New York, say, or, or uh, you know, somebody bank in, in Delaware. And that note would pass around as though it were currency. And people would uh, occasionally go back to the bank and say, you know, this note's okay, but I'm really <laughs> gold or silver. And uh, the bank would either say, um, you know, here you go, sir. Or they'd say, you know, um, why don't you come back in a week or two? <laughs> so when when people carry these notes around to the to the store or or the, you know to the iron uh, furnace or wherever they were doing business, uh, sometimes if, if they were offered a note from this, uh, the say, bank in uh, Pittsburgh or or someplace in Ohio or West Virginia or someplace uh, further west, they would say, "We well, you know, this note is, is a note." For a hundred dollars, but I'm going to take it for ninety cents because I don't really know that bank so well. Or, or maybe I'll take it for seventy cents. It was called discounting. So each piece of paper was scrutinized for, um, you know, not only what it said on the face it was worth, but the potential that there was really gold uh, or, or some sort of sort of uh, a security uh, behind it. That's truly insane. I, I th- this this period, not just economically but politically was fascinating. Your book tracks kind of the transition between uh, Teddy Roosevelt's administration through the Taft administration to Woodrow Wilson uh, and, and the process of, of putting together the Fed. It was a few guys with ideas, a few guys with power, a lot of skepticism, and a nation in a, in a deep hangover from a pair of really serious banking crises. What, could you just set the scene for us politically? 
Yeah, so the scene politically, um, like uh, today, the political parties were in transition. If you go back to the 19th century, Democrats were uh, the party of farmers, Westerners, and uh, uh, most assuredly Southerners. What we uh, people of my generation called Dixiecrats, George Wallace Democrats, small government people. They didn't want. They were the, the the party of Jefferson, of Jackson. The Republicans were still the party of Lincoln. They were the more what we would today call uh, more uh, liberal. They were also the party of the East Coast, the bankers, uh, um, uh, big business. But this was beginning to shift, uh, and in as the progressive movement. Uh, gains way. And the progressive movement was for things like um, uh, settlement houses for poor people, a better treatment of immigrants, public education for everybody, a more fair primary system, sort of reforms that made the country uh, more democratic, slightly more egalitarian, uh, you know, not just a society of plutocrats. And the progressive movement really threw a loop into the um, uh, here for stable party arrangements. Um, much, by the way, the same way this campaign today, and sort of the, you know, the, the protests about inequality and so on, have thrown a ringer into you know both of our uh, traditional parties today. Let's just dig into that a little bit because I mean, when you talk about the Democratic Party before Wilson being uh, being being kind of conservative, laissez-faire on economic issues, Democratic Party clearly doesn't get uh, religion on racial equality for several decades to come, um, but. But this idea that the Democrats are in some way, you know, the party of big government, this is something that you hear uh, is a conservative criticism uh, today. Um, but I, I think people generally who support the Democratic Party say that they, they like government solutions to, to certain types of problems. Um, is the Fed uh, sort of sort of an early an early break in that in that direction for for the party? Great question. And so and just to close the loop on your question. You know, the early Democratic Party, who were their heroes, were the first hero was Thomas Jefferson. Government that, that governs least governs best. That was, you know, governs least. That's the Democratic Party. So come the Fed, the reform movement, or, or come the the uh, reform uh, movements for a Federal Reserve, for a central bank, that fight is, is, is led at first by um, the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party being more forward, more progressive, uh, more Atlanticist, closer to Europe, and you know, observing that England and Germany and France have central banks and so on. But as the parties begin to um, to fissure and to and to break up, uh, and you know, this is why I go into the elections and the drama of the campaigns and so on. The book, uh, the Republican Party sort of becomes incapacitated, mm-hmm. and it's left to the Democrats, who are also evolving and you know, happily at least for the people who were crusaders for a central bank, they get a Democrat. But Wilson, uh, who ascends to the White House, really because the Republicans split, and, and, and Roosevelt did run a third-party ticket, of course, Walter Taft. Um, he's a new enough Democrat to embrace this idea of reform. So I guess, you know, when when we talk about the Fed today, there, there are, you know, you have people on... I think the conventional right saying we need to audit the Fed. There, I think there are also progressives who want to see more democratic accountability for the Fed. Um, but you know, we, we still have political debates over whether the Federal Reserve is a is a, a progressive institution, a reactionary institution. Um, what what it means? I mean, it, I think in the in the 
not not to give away the the end of your book, but you you say that you know the creation of the Fed doesn't spoilers. The Fed was yeah. created. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does it does get created, and then it changes after it gets created. But, but just I mean, just don't tell them the right afterwards. There was something called World War One. <laughs> Uh, but 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 the, but what what is the right way to think about the Fed? Is this a progressive reform that that you know progressive reformers implement, or is or is this a big a big scam that the bankers imposed on us um, to to further their own power? We had ser- we had serious money shortages almost annually. We had you know real breaks every third year or so. We had serious depressions more than every decade. Uh, a guy came over from uh, Germany, he's a hero of the book, a fellow named Paul Warburg, uh, emigrated to the U.S., joined his in-laws firm in New York, and, and became sort of an observer of, and participant in the banking scene, but one who knew what it was like in Europe. He likened uh, our banking system to a town in which there was no fire department, but in, in which each uh, home had a little well. In the back <laughs> I remember so that anecdote. <laughs> You know, maybe if you had a little kitchen fire, it would work. But you get a three-alarm blaze, you don't have the benefit of coordination of reserves, of pooling of reserves, and so on. Which allows the central bank to essentially put out the fire with, with, with more water. I mean, th- I guess my, my question is, you know, you have, you have this pooling of reserves that happens in 1913 with the creation of the Fed system, which makes it easier to put out certain types of financial crises. But I think when we talk about the financial system today and we talk about the Fed today, a lot of the way that we think about it is in terms of post-1913 reforms, things like deposit insurance, things like going off the gold standard. Um, but in your book, you, you point out that these things were actually hotly debated at the time. Um, can, can you tell us about that a little bit? Um, there was deposit insurance in the Senate side of the legislation for the Federal Reserve. Ironically, Carter Glass, uh, who was um, uh, the head of the House Committee, uh, wouldn't let it go through the House side. And I say ironically because Carter Glass, the one who put um, uh, established the FDIC in, in Glass-Steagall, you know, twenty years later, that was later. That's right. He's the famous Glass from Glass-Steagall. And, and the FDIC is the thing that just for people out there, it's the thing that means that like if your bank fails, you don't lose all your money. It, you're you're fine. If a bank fails today and you have deposits there, you're fine, so long as you have less than $250,000 in that bank account. Right. So the reason that that worried people then and, and today, uh, some too as well, particularly conservatives, is the idea that banks will be a little less cautious because depositors, you know, when you go to the bank today, uh, commercial banks to deposit money, you don't worry so much about the bank's uh, solvency because you know uh, that the government stands behind you. So that's... Uh, Tremendous that security. is a real detriment. Oh, on the other hand, we don't we we haven't had um, you know uh, commercial bank runs like we had uh, you know back in the nineteenth century, or in fact in the Great Depression. And, and you know, in the year I write about, people would run to the bank to get their money out because if you didn't get there in time, you didn't get it out. Yeah, if you, if you read Leocard Ahmed and Lords of Finance, I mean, he basically says the gold standard is what causes the Great Depression. I mean, it's also what um, what. Milton Friedman says, um, and, but this is something that they were talking about in 1913. That's what Barry Eichengreen said also in Golden Fetters. I mean, this is, um, so that is a real break. And when I say a real break, I mean um, the, the, the people who I write about in 1913, whether people on the uh, uh, left or, or, or more conservative bankers, not one of them really uh, could have envisioned fiat money, yeah. money that's just paper. They were very careful when they passed the Federal Reserve Act to make sure that we were still in the gold standard. 
Um, and, you know, the, the idea was if, if there's nothing behind the money, um, it's just going to turn to, you know, confetti and it'll be, you know, terrible inflation and so on. It, and particularly when you're a backwater nation the way the United States was at the time, it's, it's, it's pretty risky to say, all right, just because uh, we said so. But, but who are you? You're just, you're just this weird country. <laughs> You know, this is something we're still debating today. I, I it, it, it amazes me. Uh, it's a little off the subject in the book, but there are people who want to go back on the gold standard. Now, as you said, you know, in in the Aquins, uh, you know, great book, Lloyd's of Finance, about the Great Depression and Milton Friedman. You're completely right, um, and many others have pointed out the gold standard didn't work in the 20s and 30s. Prices fell 30 years in a row. Okay. You know, 30 years of deflation. The Fed is freaking out right now because we might get like one quarter of deflation, okay? And, and deflation, I mean, the, the, I think for most people who are listening to this, inflation is the thing that they're worried about. They're worried that their money won't be worth anything. But deflation is really, really bad for economies because it means anybody who's in debt just got way, way more in debt. And so it becomes impossible for the 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 – not impossible because much more difficult – for the economy to function, and the idea that this was happening just as a as a standard practice in the United States for decades on end, is uh, I, I find that totally staggering. It was insufferable. It, it, it wasn't working, and and you know I know that that uh, Senator Cruz, the late candidate of the uh, of the Republican Party for president, wants to bring back the gold standard. Uh, I, I just urge people to um, not do that read about what it was like when we had it, because people weren't happy. It was terrible. By the way, particularly people from uh, Cruz's part of the country, from the Southwest, from farm districts, they, they were they were showing up in Washington en masse with, with pitchforks to demand more money, <laughs> silver money, greenback money, any kind of money, money back, literally, this is the book, money back by by grain receipts and warehouses, yeah. but, but, but money back by gold didn't do it. I think one of the things I found most interesting about your book is, is seeing the way different parties, people from different classes, people from different industries, people from different political parties come together to do something which clearly makes the country better. I, I guess I, <laughs> I, I want to get, before we go here, uh, get your thoughts on whether you think that type of reform is possible oh, today. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think today... Uh, you know, given the bipartisanship uh, and cooperative spirit in Congress, um, I'm, I'm very optimistic that, uh, you know, maybe they can agree on uh, new selections for the, uh, the cafeteria in, in the Congress. But... <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks so much, Roger. It's really been great to have you. Uh, the book is called America's Bank, uh, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. It's by Roger Lowenstein. Um, it's a great book. It's a fun read. Um, and you can do it, you know, you can probably read the book in as long as it took us to discuss it on this, uh, this podcast. Um, but so thanks for joining us, Roger. Appreciate your time. It was fun. Bye-bye. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. This is the final So That Happened, executive produced by Caitlin Boguki, Khaleesi, mother of podcasts, who's on her way to the Gimlet Podcast Network. 
We want to thank Caitlin for helping us get our start and for shepherding the entire HuffPost podcast team into existence. We wish her all the best. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by author Roger Lowenstein, Republican consultant and anti-Trump organizer Liz Mayer, as well as Huffington Post reporters Laura Barone-Lopez, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Dana Liebelson. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.